Well, you can join me in opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 13. And if you're going to use a Bible that's under the seats nearby you, you can find our text on page 850 in those Bibles. And if you um, didn't bring one, I encourage you to use one of those this morning because for the next bit of time here, we take a portion of God's Word and we seek to understand it, but with His help and pray that the Spirit would transform us uh, with the words that we encounter here. So Mark 13, this chapter we're going to be looking at here, is a hard chapter to understand uh, at points. I encouraged you in our midweek email to consider reading ahead um, of the sermon text, reading ahead of this morning, and so I hope a number of you did. And we'll have the upcoming sermon text in the midweek email each week now, so if you do want to read ahead in order to prepare your heart and your mind and pray for our time together, um, that'll be a reminder each week, so I encourage you to use that. And so last week we looked at the first half, or a little bit more than the first half of this chapter, in the first 23 verses, and now we'll look at the second half. And here's the main point just right up front here. The main point is this, because Jesus will return, and we don't know when, we should live with a spiritual wakefulness. That's what he calls us to. The very final thing Jesus says in this chapter is stay awake. He's not calling us to a life of insomnia here or just staring at the sky or something like that. He's calling us to shake off our spiritual sleepiness and sluggishness and be ready and faithful. So Jesus says that His coming return should motivate us to live with a spiritual alertness and wakefulness. His return is intended to be a primary motivation for the Christian life, but it's often neglected. Some people turn the anticipation of Jesus' return into mainly speculation about various details about what it will be like or what it will be like before he returns. So some people are focused mainly on charts and timelines. They focus on geopolitical changes that they think may signal that Jesus' return is near. And the focus can slowly begin to shift from Jesus himself to various details about the event of Jesus' return and what it will be like. And because many have had this focus, that can end up turning others off to thinking about Jesus' return and anticipating Jesus' return. So one generation may get overly focused on debatable details, and then the next generation reacts and doesn't think much about Jesus' return at all. And many think that focusing on Jesus' return is irrelevant to the practicalities of everyday life. But Jesus shows in this text that anticipating his return is to be a primary, like daily, hour by hour, motivation for how we live our lives. Jesus cares what we do as we wait for him. His second coming is not irrelevant to life. It actually affirms the value of life right now. And so the image that Jesus uses for how we're to live as we wait for him is this idea of staying awake. He calls us to a state of continual spiritual wakefulness. So let's read this text together. And of course, there's going to be a number of things that may sound somewhat confusing that we'll have to work through. 
Uh, but that's the main heart of this. So Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven." From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, or it is near, at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your words here through the voice of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And so we receive these and we are open to what you have to say to us through your Holy Word. So we pray that your Spirit would be working in our minds to give us understanding, the deepest parts of our hearts to transform us so that we are living these lives of spiritual wakefulness and alertness that Jesus calls us to. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's what we'll do with our time. We see three realities about the return of Jesus, the flow of history, the cosmic significance of his return, and the life of spiritual wakefulness that he calls us to. So let's just walk through these as we walk through this section. So first, the flow of history. So chapter 13, the whole chapter, we didn't read the whole thing this morning, but between last week and this morning, Jesus is giving us an overview of some of the critical points in the flow of history after his first coming. So this chapter is a question and answer session between Jesus and his disciples. Everything that Jesus says in this chapter flows from the questions that he was asked at the very beginning of the chapter, which we looked at last week. So here's a bit of review in the context here. The Jerusalem leadership was set against Jesus from nearly the onset of his ministry. And so through the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus is healing and casting out demons and teaching and showing mercy, the leadership from Jerusalem would come to spy him out because they wanted to arrest him and they wanted to find a way to kill him. And then Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and then he arrives in chapters 11 and on are Jesus in Jerusalem. And he enters the city with symbolic gestures that he is coming as the king. He goes into the temple, and because the leadership is against him, people are rejecting him, and the temple is um, being used to take advantage of the poor and not being a place of prayer for all nations as it should be. Jesus throws over tables as this symbolic act of judgment. And then he curses a fig tree as a symbolic statement that 
um, there's judgment coming on this place. And then he debates the Jewish leaders in the temple, and they're trying to trap him, to arrest him, to kill him. So he finally leaves the temple, and as he walks out, a disciple asks him, he says, look at all these beautiful buildings. Isn't this temple area amazing? And Jesus says, these stones that you are calling beautiful, every single one of them is coming down. This place will be leveled. It's going to crumble to the ground. And so the disciples then ask Jesus as he goes across the valley, goes up the Mount of Olives and overlooking the temple. So we call this the Olivet Discourse because he's speaking on the Mount of Olives. As he's looking at the temple, the disciples ask, when is that going to happen? Right? When is that temple coming down? And how will we know that this is about to happen? And then Jesus answers those questions in the rest of this chapter. And Jesus unfolds the future in three stages. He speaks of what that first generation will experience before the temple comes down. And then he explains what it will be like when the temple is about to come down. And then he speaks of his coming after it comes down. So last week we looked at the first two of those stages in the first 23 verses here. So verses 5 to 13, Jesus tells them what to expect in the first generation. All of these things will happen, he's saying, before the temple comes down and Jerusalem is destroyed. He said there will be deception, there will be wars, there'll be disasters, there'll be persecution against his people, but the gospel will advance and saturate the world and his people will endure. And he says these things are going to happen to you, the disciples, that first generation. And then the second stage comes in verses 14 to 23 where Jesus said, describes this critical moment in history that happened in Judea in AD 70. It's an intense period of suffering as Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. He told them to watch out for what he referred to as the abomination of desolation in verse 14. This would be a moment when someone would enter or people would enter the temple and desecrate it. He says, when this happens in the temple, in Jerusalem, if you are around there as followers of me, run for the hills, get out, because that's when this is about to happen and come down, and it's going to be terrible, and it was. And so we saw the Roman general Titus led armies to Jerusalem. About a million people died in a short period of time from the armies or starvation. Thousands were crucified, and the temple in Jerusalem did come down and were destroyed. So those are the first two stages that we saw last week, and this is through verse 23. And some think, uh, as we saw, that this is all actually describing a time actually yet future to us today, right before Jesus returns. They don't believe Jesus is talking about the first generation and what happened in AD 70, but it seems pretty clear that Jesus is speaking to them about that very temple in that very generation. He says later in verse 30, as we read, that all these things will happen in this generation. And it did. And this leads to the third stage, which is verses 24 to 27, which is what we read. So this is the coming of Jesus, and he refers to himself as the Son of Man here. So look at these verses again. But in those days, verse 24, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So the question is, when does this third stage happen? And there's two main views here. 
Some believe that Jesus is still referring here to what happened to the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. They believe that Jesus came in judgment then and that that's what he's talking about with this imagery and this language of coming and them seeing the Son of Man coming with power and glory. It's his judgment on the people of Israel and Jerusalem. Others believe that Jesus now looks far beyond to an unknown day or hour that he says here, but just beyond the destruction of the temple, and he's speaking of his future return at the end of the age. So I mentioned last week that I have my own uncertainties about how to understand this chapter, and it's really this section of these verses of 24 to 27 that I'm referring to. I think it's clear that everything before verse 24 is referring to the first generation, even if we acknowledge that the destruction of the temple ends up being a, an initial foreshadowing of some greater turmoil to come later when Jesus comes in the end and similar things may happen at a larger scale or a global scale, um, but that, that it all is referring to that first generation. I think that's clear, verses 1 to 23. But verses 24 to 27 here, uh, it's not as clear, but I've given this a lot of thought and I have landed with Sinclair Ferguson on this one. So here's how he articulated his view, and I'm in full agreement with this. He said, It is difficult to know whether verses 24 to 27 refer to those events in AD 70 or to the end of the age. <laughs> so, his scholarly opinion, I'm on his side. Actually, I do think that Jesus is now speaking of his second coming at the end of the age. However, as we look at this more closely, I think there is real merit to both views, and I think that the main point actually stands and is the same. I want to I show you why I think that. So, first, we've seen this history unfolding in three stages, with the first generation, and then the destruction of the temple, and then the coming of the Son of Man, however you take it with either that's the destruction of the temple or second coming. That's the third stage he's talking about here. So second, let's consider the cosmic significance of what Jesus is describing here in his coming in verses 24 to 27. So Jesus uses language here that is charged with significance. He's drawing on three specific expectations from the Old Testament. And when we see the significance of all of this, we can appreciate why it's actually hard to tell what moment in history he's referring to, whether it's the destruction of the temple at the end of the Jewish age and era in AD 70, or the coming at the end of the age. And so here are three aspects of Jesus's return that show its cosmic significance, because the language here that Jesus is speaking about, even if there is kind of a literal one-to-one -one correlation of what he describes here and what will be seen one day, the, the main point is what the language means, the, the significance of this. So the first, there's actually three words if you want to summarize the three aspects, and that's judgment, vindication, and gathering. That's what he's speaking of as he speaks of his coming in this language. So first, his return will be a moment of judgment. So he describes his coming with language of cosmic upheaval and change. So look again at verses 24 and 25. He says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. So that's the language used numerous times by the Old Testament prophets to refer to God's judgment 
of the nations that would come at some point. Isaiah 13 used this language to refer to God's judgment against Babylon, the world power, the coming world power of that time. So listen to Isaiah 13 verse 10. It says this, speaking of the judgment of a nation, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. So the judgment will be so severe against Babylon that it, it, this cosmic disorder language is pulled together to say this is of massive earth-shattering consequence. So what does it mean that Jesus uses that kind of language to refer to the future? Well, Jesus is saying that when he comes, this will be a time of judgment. It will be a demonstration of his rightful reign and judgment against prideful nations and peoples like Babylon in the Old Testament. So that's the first thing that he's signaling here with the cosmic language. It's judgment. Second, it'll be the vindication of Jesus. His coming will be his vindication as the world's true king. So look at verse 26 again. And they will see the Son of Man, referring to himself, coming in clouds with great power and glory. Jesus often used that language to describe himself. I mean, over and over in his ministry, he called himself the Son of Man. He referred to himself coming with great power and glory. And this language, as some of you know, is from Daniel 7. Daniel saw a vision of several beasts that represented the nations and kingdoms of this world. But then these nations that conquer each other one after another will lose their power because all the authority will give way, be given way to a new king. God's king represents his people. There'll be a new kingdom. And this king is referred to in Daniel 7 as one like a son of man. And he has a coming. But it's interesting, in Daniel 7, the coming actually isn't from heaven to earth on clouds. It's actually of a coming from earth to heaven on the clouds to the ancient of days, the God the Father, to receive the kingdom. So the Son of Man will come to God to receive his kingdom and authority over all the nations of the world. So I'll just read that text for you from Daniel 7. Verses 13 and 14 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus goes around referring to himself as the Son of Man who would come in great power and glory. But in his first coming, that glory was seen through suffering and death and sacrifice. It was the, the beauty was veiled to so many people because it wasn't this kind of glory that will one day be manifest here. But he's saying, yes, you will see the Son of Man coming one day in the clouds to receive power and glory and receive his kingdom. And you will see him enthroned. So this is the vindication of Jesus. So there will be a great moment of judgment and Jesus will be vindicated as king. And then third, there'll be a gathering. He will gather his chosen people together, his elect. All of his people who are chosen from the foundation of the world will be saved, and they will be gathered. This is verse 27. 
And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Jesus is drawing on a number of promises here from the Old Testament. In the background was this regathering of God's people who were scattered over the earth. So God rescued Israel, brought them out of Egypt, and then he said from the beginning to Moses, uh, this project with Israel isn't going to work out for them because they're going to rebel against me and hate me, and they do it from day one. And generation after generation goes by, and God's patient with them. But he says to Moses, from the very beginning of their story, one day um, they're going to be sent out of their land and scattered among the nations. And then he also tells Moses in Deuteronomy 30, but I will gather them back. I will gather them together. And so various prophets pick up on that language from Deuteronomy 30 and that hope. And they say from the four corners of the earth, from north, south, east, and west, God will regather his people. And Isaiah speaks, especially Isaiah, about how this isn't just Israel coming back to the land. This is Israel and the nations, people from every people group who will come to God and be restored to him. And so these are the three realities related to his coming. It will be a moment of judgment and vindication of Jesus and gathering together of all his people. So in light of that, we come to one of the questions that's asked about this text. What time is Jesus actually referring to? When will this happen? Is he referring to the destruction of the temple period in AD 70? Or is he speaking here of his return at the end of the age? And it's actually hard to tell. And here's why this has been so debated. And I know some, for some people that have, especially of you that, that think this will be at the end of the age, which I told you where I am on that, um, I agree. Sometimes we can be, uh, those who believe that can, can get so locked in that view, they can't even imagine how this language could apply to anything other than the second coming. But it's really interesting what the New Testament authors and Jesus himself repeatedly do with these very promises that Jesus is bringing up here. All three promises from the Old Testament perspective were end-time promises, things that would happen at the end of the age, caught up with the new creation and the renewal of all things and the resurrection of God's people from the dead and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit over all his people. And so they're promises of the end of the age. God would judge the nations. He would give the Son of Man the kingdom to reign over all things. And he would gather his people together to be with him forever, right? That's the Old Testament perspective with all those promises. But when Jesus comes the first time, all of those promises have actually already begun to be fulfilled. There is a sense in which all of those promises are already being fulfilled right now, and yet they're not yet fully fulfilled. They've begun to be fulfilled with Jesus' first coming, but are not yet fulfilled until his return. So think about this with me. That first image of judgment with the sky going dark and this changes in the skies. Well, this happened at the cross, the moment when God's end time judgment was brought into the middle of history to be poured out on his son. The judgment you and I deserve in the end was poured out on Jesus in our place. And th throughout the New Testament, and especially as you even read the descriptions of the cross in the gospel accounts, the language of that end time judgment is used to describe what happened there with an earthquake and the sun going dark and God's wrath being poured out for us. 
So it's already begun to be fulfilled. And this could certainly also then be applied to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, the, the judgment that Jesus spoke of many times that would come upon this final last generation of the Jewish people as, as far as they knew it. Um, be, there'd be a destruction and a judgment. This was the end of the Jewish and Old Testament order. And then it would also happen when Jesus returns in its final and fullest sense in a cosmic and global scale. The second promise of the vindication of Jesus, this image of the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and glory, that has already begun to be fulfilled as well. Flip over just to the next chapter in Mark 14, verse 62. Jesus is standing before the high priest, and he says to the high priest, and this is what finally they decide drops the hammer on him, he says, you will see, so this is Mark 14, 62, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. You will see. They, they will see, those people in front of him. And then Luke and Matthew actually quote this as well, and they add a little bit more of what Jesus said in that moment. They say that Jesus said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man receiving this power and glory. And then when Jesus is resurrected, he gives the great commission. You remember how this begins? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he ascends to heaven in Acts 1, 17. And do you remember what he goes away with? It's in the clouds. He's going with the clouds to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom. And then Stephen, who's martyred, sees a vision. The sky opens up and he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the power. He has his glory. Jesus is reigning. He is our king right now. So certainly that could apply to Jesus being vindicated and destroying the temple. And it certainly will happen when the sky rips open again. And we see the Son of Man coming with great power and glory. And then this last image of gathering, this has begun as well. All through the Gospel of Mark, what Jesus is doing with great compassion and mercy is he's gathering people who are exiled from God. He's restoring people to God. And he's bringing them in his wake as he goes to the cross, calling them to follow him. And then now the Gospel's going out and here we are. We're gathering together in God's presence. And then we wait for his future return where he will... As First Thessalonians 4 says, he will we'll see the clouds and he'll come and he'll gather his people um, in a very tangible, physical sense as well. And that certainly could relate as well to AD 70 with Jesus judging Jerusalem and then spreading the gospel across the globe. So the kingdom's advancing. This is what I hope we see. We can debate whether or not Jesus is referring to AD 70 or the second coming here. And the reason it's debated is actually because of the, the main point that Jesus is making here, which is God is fulfilling his promises. His king is reigning. He's gathering his people. All of his promises are being fulfilled. So the question we have is only, it's not, does this apply to the first century or the future return of Jesus? The question is just, well, it, it applies to both. The question is just what is in view right here in these verses when Jesus says this? That's what's debated, and could kind of go either way. I just think he probably refers to the second coming here. So the kingdom's advancing. We await the return of the king. So this, this leads to the third point, which brings us all to a very tangible, practical level, which is the life of spiritual wakefulness. So in verses 28 to 37, Jesus draws all of this to a very practical conclusion, and he gives us lessons about how to live in light of everything that he said here. 
He's spoken about what will happen in the first generation, which we saw last week. He's spoken about that destruction of the temple, and he's spoken also now of his return at the end of the age, and now he has some lessons for us. And there's three of them. We trust his word, we avoid speculation about timing, and we stay awake. So let's consider these together. First, we trust his word. This is from verses 28 to 31, and it was a lesson first for that first generation of Christians. It's a lesson for those who are anticipating the destruction of the temple, but it's relevant to us as well. So look at verse 28. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So it's a basic illustration. When you see a fig tree start to have leaves, you know that summer is near. And here's the point in verse 29 then. So also, when you see these things taking place, these things that were going to happen in the first century, when you see them taking place, you know that he or it is near at the very gates. So he's saying that when these realities we saw last week happen, you know that the judgment's near. And then verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All those things about the first generation there will happen. And then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So do you see his, see his main point here? He's saying, you can trust me. Trust my words. It's going to get really hard. Life is hard, and then especially for Christians, there's going to be persecution. And we've seen that happen through the centuries, beginning in the first one. And the, the most stable realities in life, he's saying, heaven and earth being there, those may pass away, he says, but my words will never pass away. So if you want your feet to be planted in the uncertainties of life on something stable, Jesus is saying you can trust my words. And we now have even more reason to trust his words. So that first generation had that destruction coming on its horizon, and then it happened. And no doubt many Christians thought he was right. He said it would happen. We read about it happening, and it did happen. We can trust his words because he fulfilled them. So we now have already seen. I mean, what Jesus predicted in that first century that has happened in that first generation is a strong piece of evidence that he is a trustworthy king and that his words are faithful and true, which means now in the uncertainties of life that we have, waiting for his coming, which many say, clearly it's not going to happen. And do you ever even just feel like that? Is it going to? I mean, it's been a long time. No doubt that first generation, they didn't know it was going to be 35 to 40 years later that the temple would be destroyed, but he said it'll happen. And he waited till the very end of that generation for it all to end up happening. And so we're waiting still today. And he said, you don't know the day or hour, but trust me. Second, avoid speculation. In verse 32, he gives a lesson about his return. He says, we don't know when it will be, so we shouldn't speculate. He says this, you can read it with me in verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the main point is avoid speculation. However, we need a little side note here because that's a surprising statement to us that Jesus made about him not knowing the day or hour, right? So this raises a theological question. We believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God. So how is it that he is divine, and yet he is ignorant here, at least at that time, of the timing of his return? 
It's an important question. I've had many conversations over the years with some of you. It comes up in your Bible reading and curious about what that means and how we understand that. So quick theological sidebar, Jesus is the God-man, truly God, truly man. He's one person. He's one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And so with respect to his divine nature, he does maintain all of the divine perfections. And so he does know all things. And yet with, with respect to his human nature, he experienced truly the limitations of humanity. He grew in knowledge. I'll never forget hearing Alistair Begg speak. This was probably 17 years ago or so um, at a conference, and he was looking at Jesus in Gethsemane. He said, just look at him. Look at him weeping as he anticipates the cross, a distressed Christ. And he said, Jesus had to learn his colors. He, He experienced what it's like to be a human being with all of its limitations on, in complete dependence on the Father. So I recommend regularly um, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. It's probably my fourth recommendation this year so far. Might be setting a record there. And he addressed this really well in that book. Here's what he said. Just as Jesus did not do all that he could have done because certain things were not his Father's will, so he did not consciously know all that he might have known but only what the Father willed him to know. His knowing, like the rest of his activity, was bounded by the Father's will. And therefore, the reason why he was ignorant, for instance, of the date of his return, was not that he had given up the power to know all things at the Incarnation, but that the Father had not willed that he should have this particular piece of knowledge while on earth prior to his passion. So Jesus had to learn to obey as a man, independence of the Father, and in relation to the Holy Spirit, without knowing all the details. And so he chose to rely on the Father, and in relation to the Spirit, with all those limits of human experience that the Father willed for him to experience. End of sidebar. Jesus' point, don't speculate about the timing of his return. Many people have, of course, missed this lesson over the years. You may remember, I think the most recent public example of this was Harold Camping. He passed away in um, 2013, but those years, especially shortly before he passed away, I mean, there's billboards all over about judgment day is coming and dates are put on the billboards. And he had a history of picking a date. Many people would be following him, believing this, anticipating him, and wondering if it's true, thinking it's true, and then that date would come and go. And then he would go back to his notes and say, you know, I missed this verse, or I, I forgot that word, or I did the math wrong, and so we've got to add these numbers up this way, and that calculates September, not April. And then September comes and goes, and Jesus didn't return, right? And then it's like, well, he did in, in a sense come, right? So uh, he led people astray, and I can't imagine the disillusionment of some of the people who worked very closely with him um, with all of his speculations, which Jesus literally right here says, Don't do that. No one knows the day or the hour. So don't be led astray. Final note here is to stay awake. It's the main thrust of the whole chapter. He repeats this language of staying awake over and over here, and it's how he ends it, this call to spiritual wakefulness. This isn't just insomnia looking at the skies. He's saying to stay spiritually awake. So put off your sluggishness. He's saying put off your sleepiness. Don't be slothful 
In verses 33 to 36, he tells a story of a master who leaves his home and he leaves his servants in charge. And then one of the servants has a role of being a doorkeeper. And that doorkeeper is to stay awake through the night because he doesn't know at what time the master is going to return. And so this is a picture of the current age we're living in now. Our master has left. He's put us in charge. And we're to stay awake because we don't know when he's going to be coming back. And you see his point then in verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So you and I are servants. And we have this amazing, wonderful, powerful master, the risen and enthroned son of man. And he's coming back. We don't know when. And he says, in view of that, be ready. Stay awake. He's given us work to do. Each one of you, myself included, we have a particular set of skills that he's given us. All those who are in Christ have a spiritual gift to be used to strengthen and serve one another or spread the gospel to others. We each have our own set of people and needs around us that he calls us to meet. And Jesus calls us to be a light in the world. Speak the good news of Jesus to the world. Bring people out of darkness. Live lives of good works and faithfulness in the meantime before he comes. That's what spiritual wakefulness is about. It's being alive to Jesus, happily alert, ready for him to come. We're to live all of life with the end in view. So our master's going to come back and every one of us will give an account to him and how we spent every day, every minute. And he will be eager to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we are called to be faithful and to look forward to that day so that he has some things that he can actually be referring to, to say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is especially important when life feels disorienting to you and confusing. Maybe you're wondering what your purpose is. Maybe you're in a season of temptation to be spiritually lazy or spiritually sleepy. The commitment you had in the past to fight sin with that kind of radical vigilance Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, cutting off your arm, gouging out your eye lest you sin against Christ, you wonder, where's that gone in me? That fight, that vigilance to honor Christ, that eagerness for his coming. Maybe God's word is boring to you recently. You come and go on Sundays, but you don't seek to encourage one another. And Jesus is saying, wake up. I'm coming back. You don't know when. Be spiritually ready. So I was just reviewing uh, the Lord of the Rings um, yesterday and came across a spot that I had just some notes in the margins because I loved this moment. It's, uh, if you're familiar with this story, there's this epic battle at Helm's Deep and um, some of the main characters in this story are surrounded and completely outnumbered through the night in this terrible battle. So you have Aragorn, this coming king, and King Theoden, and these other people. They're back, they're getting pushed back further and further with these forces of darkness, and they're surrounded, they're backed into a corner, they're outnumbered, and they just decide, we're going to ride out with courage. But at least a King Theoden, this guy leading this charge, he didn't have hope that it would do any good. He's riding out to his death. But riding out with courage, but no hope. And then, 
as they go out through into this battle, it's dawn. Light's coming up. And then Gandalf, this angelic servant figure through the movie, shows up on the crest of the hill on his white horse. And he comes down with his army to rescue. And then the two groups meet in the middle and shake hands. And Theoden says to Gandalf, you have a fine way of showing up unlooked for. And Gandalf says, unlooked for? I said I'd come. I didn't give you the time. So that's us, right? Let's be busy. Let's ride out with hope because he's coming. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we're part of this wonderful story of history that you're writing. Thank you for including us in it. Thank you for giving us this privilege of knowing what is to come and of knowing you through the risen Lord Jesus and by the Spirit. We pray that you would work in our hearts doing the things that only you can do to make us spiritually alert and awake. We pray for those who feel particularly sluggish and lazy or hopeless. We pray that you would kindle in them this very morning, perhaps this very moment, a warm fire of zeal and joy and love and hope in Christ that wouldn't go out. And we pray that you would have us live with this readiness so that at any given moment, in any given day, we would remember the hope of the coming of Jesus. And it would enter into our heart with such power that we would say no to sinning against you. And we would shake off our sleepiness and delight to know you and make you known. I pray this in Jesus' name.